The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. I'm John the Second. Actually, I'm John Jr. Um, please don't call me that. Just throw it out there. Like, I have avoided that for 51 years, people calling me junior. So if you can just continue that trend, that would be amazing for me. Um, I'm John, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited today to dig into Mark chapter 3. So I would encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, to open it to Mark chapter 3. Maybe you have... One of these, uh, one of these booklets. Uh, perhaps yours is green. Uh, there's no difference between a blue book and a green book. We just ran out of one of the colors. I don't remember which one it was. So we started printing them with the second color. Um, all of the um, the Mark texts that we're going to be reading today, you can find in this uh, booklet. Along with on the other side, you'll see some uh, some space for you to make notes for you to. Uh, some study questions for you to follow along to talk about in your small groups. Uh, we say this at the beginning of every one of our series and throughout them. There are going to be things that I don't talk about you wish I would, and there are going to be things that I do talk about that you wish I wouldn't. And small group is your way to talk about the opposite of those things and get connected that way. If you, if you miss one of our messages... Um, there are lots of ways you can get caught up. You can go to our YouTube channel and, and the video is on there. We're also on, uh, on podcasts. So, uh, what, however you get audio podcasts, you can find our messages on there so you can stay, um, stay connected and stay in tune on that way. So uh, reading through the book of Mark over the past several months has has caused me a lot of tension. I don't know how you interact with the Bible, but I interact with a lot of a lot of tension. Um, and then when I, after I've read it and I start working on the messages, uh, I feel more tension because the Gospel of Mark is not one of those books of the Bible that is a I can read this and apply that kind of a book. Does that make sense? Sometimes when we read through the, the, the letters that Paul writes to the churches, we see very specific instructions that, that Christians are supposed to follow or individuals are supposed to follow. Sometimes embedded in the teachings of the Gospels, we see things that we, that we should do or shouldn't do. And what I found over, especially the past few weeks, the more I've been reading into Mark, and especially as I've been preparing for the message on Sunday, um, Mark doesn't really do that very much for us. Mark's, Mark's process is to invite us to know Jesus, to invite us to know the character of Jesus, to invite us to know the identity of Jesus, his purpose, not just to know what he did. And I think there are times uh, in, in our Christian walk, I know there have been times in my Christian walk where I just want to know the facts, right? Just tell me, tell me what I have to believe. I don't, want, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to work for it. I just want to know what I should do or shouldn't do. And Mark is just not that kind of gospel. I don't know if you've picked up on that. Mark is designed for us to reflect upon the kind of Jesus Jesus is, the kind of Messiah Jesus is. And see, when we reflect on who Mark is presenting to us, 
about Jesus, then we can think about and only then can we consider what that means for our lives. So when we read these stories, it's not so much a takeaway, what's my application? Like the story we're going to read today, one of the stories we're going to read today is how Jesus goes to the synagogue. There's a man with a, with a messed up hand, with a disabled hand, and Jesus calls him up in front of everyone, heals him, and we might ask the question, well, what am I supposed to do with that? What's my application? And that's not Mark. Mark is inviting us to reflect upon the kind of person that Jesus is. And this is why Jesus' teachings, talked about this last week, Jesus' teachings aren't just a patch onto our old life. We can't just take what Jesus says like a band-aid to cover up a wound. It's not what Jesus is doing. That's not why he came. Jesus isn't, isn't new wine going into old wineskins. He's something completely different. And I told you a few weeks ago that we were going to see three different responses as we read through the gospel of Mark between now and Easter. We're going to see three different kinds of responses to the person of Jesus in the book of Mark. And these are, these are common human responses to Jesus. The first one was follow. And we saw that repeatedly in chapter one. Jesus is on the beach. He sees some fishermen. He says, hey, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They drop everything they're doing and they follow him. It's the first response. There's excitement and there's positivity and there's positive response to Jesus. And here's the second response. We began to see this last week. Who is he? We observe Jesus. Maybe we read through the gospel of Mark. We get caught up in the story that they were in. And we ask, who is Jesus really? Because he's, he's going to do some things over the course of the next many weeks that we're going to see that we don't think Jesus is normally like. Again, like calling someone to stand in front of a group of people with a deformed hand. Like that's really strange. That's that would be culturally inappropriate for us, right? We would never do anything like that. Yet Jesus doesn't seem to have that same fear. We talked about this in our small group a few weeks ago. Jesus doesn't seem to have the same fears and hangups that we do because he's God. So who is he? The teachers of the religious law are feeling this pressure as he teaches. Last week he forgave sin. And that's something that only God can do. So is Jesus saying that he's God? He enjoys the company of traitors and sinners. Doesn't he know that we're supposed to be separate from those people? See, this is a question of who is Jesus. He, he doesn't follow their religious rituals. They think that Jesus should fast. They think that Jesus' disciples should not harvest on the Sabbath. Who is he? Who does this guy think he is? Let's read chapter 3, and again, you can follow along. We're going to read all of chapter 3 right now. Jesus went into the synagogue, and notice that he's picking up. Mark is picking up right where he left off in Mark chapter 2 last week. Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So don't be surprised when we get a Sabbath story. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a deformed hand, Come and stand in front of everyone. 
Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. See, so Jesus, Jesus isn't just here to, de, to, to heal deformed hands. Jesus is here to confront the wickedness of the human heart. So as we think about who Jesus is, we probably have a pretty neutered mindset of who Jesus is. Oh, Jesus heals people. He's nice. He's good. He's kind. He says all of these wonderful sayings and he confronts the wickedness of human hearts. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. That escalated kind of quickly, didn't it? Like Jesus is confronting them and, and we read these things, Pharisees and people who supported Herod. So the Pharisees were people who believed in a strict observance to the law. So they would have had the first five books of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and they would have wanted a strict adherence to the law. They were against Rome. And the Herodians, well, they were supporters of the king that the Romans put in power. So I want you to notice that the Pharisees here who are so against Rome are willing to work with their enemies. They're willing to be united with their enemy to be against Jesus, to kill him. Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from east of the Jordan River, even from as far north as Tyre and Sidon. And you should know that's 40 to 50 miles. So imagine walking 40 or 50 miles to hear someone teach. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide and vast numbers of people came to see him. Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. He healed many people that day, so all the sick people eagerly pushed forward to touch him. And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, you are the son of God. But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. We're going to talk more about that one in a moment. But when we reflect on this, we understand the kind of person Jesus is. We understand the kinds of things going on here. What we see in the demons is something amazing. There is a way, and this, this ought to press on us. There is a way to acknowledge the truth about Jesus without believing in him. See, there's a way to agree with all of the things Christians believe with and not be affected by him. This ought to weigh on our hearts. This ought to be a moment where, where we reflect and we ask ourselves, when have I agreed with who Jesus was, but haven't been obedient to him? 
When have I saw these things and read these things and heard these things, but not, affect, not let that affect my life? Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. Notice that that's an invitation. We've talked about that a number of times. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. These are the 12 he chose. Simon, whom he named Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. It's an awesome nickname. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot. Let's pause there for a second. In Luke, it says Simon, who was called the zealot. See, Simon was the part of a revolutionary movement in Palestine, in Israel during this time. And what Simon believed, what the zealots believed is um, they would be, they were going to bring up an armed rebellion against Rome. Simon the zealot is the kind of guy that on January 6th would have been at the Capitol. He is ready to overthrow the government of Rome. And Jesus invites him to be a disciple along with Matthew, the tax collector. Remember what I said about him last week? Matthew was the guy that was taking money from you to fund the occupation. What do you think it would have been like to be in the room with those two? You think there was some disagreements? Think there was some arguments about the reality of Jesus's kingdom? Jesus is doing something here. And Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Let's flip the page. One time, Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets his power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So here's really the third response that we're seeing in chapter 3 of Mark. We're seeing rejection. The people are beginning to reject Jesus. 
And as we talked about this last week in our staff meeting, reading through Mark chapter 3, um, Jesus creates a lot of tension. Did you notice that in this, in this particular chapter? He sees a man with a deformed hand. Instead of ignoring him like we would all do, he calls him up in front of everyone. Which really isn't that strange. I mean, let's be honest. The guy knew he had a deformed hand. They knew he had a deformed hand. Jesus knew he had a deformed hand. Jesus just acknowledged it. And this creates a lot of tension. We see this tension building throughout chapter 3 as Mark details for us the kind of person, the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. I want to read, this was in last week's Bible reading plan. It says, every move of God is met with resistance from the enemy. There's no such thing as faith without resistance. Revival always disrupts the status quo and uncovers the works of darkness in the lives of individuals, people groups, governments, and nations. This happens because the kingdom of God is a dividing line. No one can stand with a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom at the same time. The king of the kingdom seeks to rob the darkness of his prisoners while the devil seeks to stop him and increase the darkness. Think about, think about what we've talked about so far in light of that quote. In chapter 1, there's a man who's possessed by a demon. And when he sees Jesus, he asks the question, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. See, when Jesus shows up in the synagogue that day, that's resistance. He's disrupting the status quo. Think about it for a moment. That man had probably sat in that synagogue for years, hadn't he? The demon-possessed man had probably sat in that synagogue for years. Was never disrupted. Status quo was never challenged. Nothing new ever happened. The people themselves say that who, they can't figure out who Jesus is. He speaks with authority. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And the demons were confronted with the reality. The man was confronted with the reality of who he was. Jesus disrupts. Last week was nothing but dividing lines. We talked about them earlier. We had the forgiveness of sins. We had him being with the unclean, being with the outcast, harvesting on the Sabbath. Jesus is creating this tension. And he's, he's forcing people to choose a side. Pick a side. Now we get to the question you've been asking probably for three weeks. How come Jesus doesn't want people to know who he is? Why, why does he tell people to be quiet? Why does he tell people to tell no one? And here's really the answer. Because each one of these people had in their minds who Jesus was. Each one of these people had in their minds who the Messiah was, what kind of Messiah he was, what kinds of things he was going to do, what kinds of things he was going to say. And we start to see this by the questions they're asking him. Does this make sense? Like, Jesus, we thought the Messiah was going to do A, B, and C, and now you're doing like Z, F, and 1.9. Like, you're not, you're not even, I don't even think, Jesus, you, you saw the Messiah rule book. What you're doing is so far outside the boundaries. 
So he's telling them to keep it quiet. He's, he's not coming out, as it were, as the Messiah, because their misunderstandings are only going to get in the way. Does that make sense? See, once he says this, then as much as they thought A, B, and C before, as soon as he says Messiah, they're really going to stick to that. And we see over time that, that he reveals more and more and more about himself, and they eventually kill him for it. But what Jesus is out to do by word and by deed is to show the kind of Messiah he was. Not, not to agree with their popular ideas of who he was, but to demonstrate who he was by his actions and by his words. They would just take it their way and be filled with more misunderstandings. But the thing is, and this is, this is true, this is why beginning next week, as, as we read through Mark chapter 4 together, we're going to see a little phrase like, um, let him who has ears to hear. See, for the people who are paying attention to what's going on in the story so far, all of the signs are there. The voice from heaven, the healings and the exorcisms, the forgiveness of sins, the lifting up of the lowly, declaring himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. See, for those who really knew their scriptures, these things would be perfectly in line with who the Messiah was. But what they did was they allowed their misunderstandings to define Jesus. And Jesus, we're only three chapters in. Jesus isn't playing their game. Jesus is not going to allow them to define him. Jesus is going to define himself on their own terms. And see, when the Pharisees encounter him, they cannot stand him. They cannot endure him. He's the blazing fire that refines them. He's the strong soap that bleaches them. He's the refiner of silver that burns away the dross. And that's from Malachi 3. You remember we read that at the beginning of this series? See, Malachi 3 was talking about the kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be. And he is confronting the religious leaders of the day. He's confronting their notions and they, they can't stand him. They can't believe that this is the Messiah. And in chapter 3, I really think the gloves are coming off. As Jesus reveals more and more and more and more about the reality of who he is, he's becoming more bold. He calls the deformed man up in front of everyone. Acknowledging him, seeing him, giving him attention. And then he says, what does the law say about the Sabbath? Is it for doing good or evil? Is it to save or destroy? The Pharisees didn't answer. It wasn't because they didn't know the answer to the question. It was because in their stubbornness, they're going to be against Jesus. See, this kind of thing is blazing fire. It's strong soap. They refuse to respond. And instead of rejoicing when someone is healed, they plot murder. See, the presence of Jesus brings tension. This is something as we read through Mark, 
Honestly, as we read through every one of the Gospels, Jesus is bringing tension. He heals many people and so many people are pressing in on him that he has to get into a boat. Imagine the scene. Imagine people walking from 40 or 50 miles away to be healed. He has to get in a boat to get, to get away so he can be heard. And then if that isn't chaotic enough, there, my hunch is there are thousands of people. If that isn't chaotic enough, throw a few demon-possessed people up front. All shouting, you are the son of God. You are the son of God. You are the son of God. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Falling on the ground? They're not saying those things in praise and honor. They're trying to distract. See, Jesus is on a mission. Jesus is on a mission. And the workers of iniquity, the demons, are out to stop it. They know who Jesus is. They know what Jesus is doing. They see the kingdom of God advancing. And what Jesus is doing is he's entering into the kingdom of this world. This is one of my favorite parts from Mark chapter 3. Jesus is entering into the kingdom of this world. And he's taking what belongs to Satan. And he's making it his own. That's what Jesus is doing. That's the, that's the point of that story about the, the strong man who plunders. See, we, we are in our pre-saved status. We belong to the devil. That's what Ephesians 2 says. We belong to the devil. And what Jesus does is he comes into the kingdom of the world and he punches Satan in the face and he binds him up and he takes us out with him. He saves us. And this is, this is creating so much tension in him that they blame Satan. Well, he has to belong to Satan. And even his family isn't immune to the question, who is Jesus? Imagine if that were your child. Wouldn't you want to go get your son? If he's being followed by thousands upon thousands of people and is on a boat and he's doing all of these things, it says they weren't even, they didn't even have time to eat. Moms, you're going to get your son in that situation, right? Someone has to step in here and it's going to be you. See, they think he's out of his mind. Jesus' presence in Mark chapter 3 brought all sorts of tension. It brought tension to the religious leaders. Jesus' presence brought tension in the spiritual world. And Jesus' presence brought tension among his family. And this is where we now need to reflect. We need to meditate on the text. We need to meditate on the scripture. And we need to see that Jesus' presence brings tension today. And if we were to be honest, the same thing that brought tension in his day was misunderstanding. Our world and our culture doesn't know who Jesus is. 
They don't know what to do with Jesus, which is why they so often relegate him to a good teacher. Have you noticed that? Jesus is a good teacher in a long line of many other good teachers. He's a good moral person. He tells me wisdom and how I should live my life. And if I just follow the words of Jesus, like I don't have to believe that he's the son of God. I don't have to believe that he died on the cross. I don't have to believe that he's the only way to salvation. Do you see how, do you see how that neuters Jesus? I know that's a weird word in this context, but that's what happens. It makes Jesus less than who he really was. And this creates tension coming out of misunderstandings. We look for a savior who's going to give us a healthy, wealthy life. And when he doesn't do that, we're filled with tension, aren't we? See, we thought, we believed that the pathway to an unchaotic life was following Christ. Like I'm doing all of the things that I'm supposed to do that a good Christian would do. Why is my life hard? Why is that not working out for me. See, Jesus creates tension. And I would say that this is on purpose. I would argue that this is on purpose because when Jesus shows up, it reveals which kingdom we're worshiping. Do you see that in the text? Remember, Jesus goes to the synagogue, pulls the man up front and says, hey, um, religious leaders, what should I do? What's the Sabbath for? Prior to that moment, what kingdom do you think they thought they were a part of? God's kingdom, right? Because we keep the law. We make sure nobody does anything on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus' presence reveals which kingdom they're actually in. And this same thing happens in our own lives he reveals what kingdom we're worshiping. He exposes us. And I want to tell you that this is, this tension's a good thing. When we feel this tension, our response to the tension is to dig deeper into God's word. When I don't understand the reality of who Jesus is, one of us is wrong and spoiler, it's not him. So if I don't like something that Jesus says or Jesus does, he's not the wrong one. I have to take responsibility and learn more. I have to dig in. And this is where we reflect, how is Jesus disrupting my life? Is Jesus disrupting your life? I would argue if Jesus is not disrupting your life, you may not know who Jesus actually is. And that doesn't mean that we're running around 24-7 in chaos and anarchy trying to figure out what's going on wrong with our lives. But it does mean that there are times where I'm going to read the Bible and I'm not going to like what it says. And I'm going to have to do it anyway because he is the Lord. 
I'm going to have to be obedient regardless of my thoughts or regardless of my feelings because Jesus is disrupting my life. And that's, that's the beauty, I think, of hardship and reality because it exposes us. It reveals us for who we really are. And once exposed, we can make a choice. This is one of my favorite things about the Christian life is we, we get to choose Jesus. We have the opportunity, once exposed, to make a choice. And the choice is simple. We can be, we can be divided against him or we can enter into unity with him. We can reject his work or we can allow him to pour into us like a new wineskin. We don't really think much about wineskins. So this morning as I was up early thinking about wineskins and wine, that metaphor that Jesus uses, don't use new wine in old wineskins. See what happened is they would put wine into a new wine into a new wineskin and over time as the wine fermented it would expand. So if you put new wine that has yet to expand into an old wineskin which has already expanded, what happens when that new wine expands? It bursts. It opens up. So when we are new and Jesus is in our lives and the Holy Spirit dwells within us, Stay with me. Jesus ages, expands to the fullness of who he is like an aged wine in our souls. And we expand with him. We grow with him. We're unified with him. But this unity has a price. It has a cost. There are so many times we... As Christians, we think about the gift of salvation as free, and it is. We haven't done anything to earn it. We haven't done anything to warrant it. We can't earn it. We can't be good enough. You're not good enough to earn curry, earn salvation from Jesus. But there's a cost. Cost is obedience. That's verse 35. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. See, that's the cost. So when I enter into this relationship with Christ, when I accept his invitation to be his follower, I, like I have to pay something. There's a price and that price is obedience. And in return for that, we enter into the family of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Like we have, we have a new family. We have new relationships we are made new. And here's how Paul describes that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Have you ever thought about that, that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing? Sometimes we think we're going to get something out of that relationship with God. Again, a healthy life, a wealthy life. We just, we just get every spiritual blessing. 
Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I think somebody either in here or online needs to hear that God bringing you into his kingdom is something that he actually wanted to do. God wanted to bring you into his kingdom. He didn't begrudgingly have to. He didn't roll his eyes and be like, oh my goodness, this dude is coming in. He wanted to. And not only did he want to, but it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. See, that's our response. We praise God. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He's showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. My hope for you today, my hope for us today is we read through Mark chapter three and we are confronted along with the people in the text and the stories that we're reading, we're confronted with the reality that Jesus causes tension in our lives. And according to what we just read in Ephesians chapter one, Jesus also relieves that tension. He's the only thing that relieves that tension. And he does it joyfully, filled with the desire. He wants to relieve that tension. He wants you to know the fullness of who he is. He invites you to know the fullness of who he is. And he reveals to us the fullness of who he is. And that's what we're reading in the gospels. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning thankful that you reveal the reality of who you are to us. Some of those realities are challenging to us. In fact, many of them are challenging to us. They're not palatable. They're difficult to take, hard to understand. But you are just revealing the totality of who you are to us. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears and our eyes, that we would see you for who you really are. So much more than a good teacher. So much more than someone who's merely interested in healing physical ailments. You desire to fix us deeply. Help us to see that reality. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.